you for allowing me to parachute in and be a part of RBF's ministry for uh, just a weekend. Uh, I have just heard so many amazing things about this church. Uh, I have friends here and uh, just from afar, uh, I've been able to see God work in amazing ways and I hear really great things. Uh, I'm personally very excited for this retreat because I get to catch up with some old friends and uh, you've all been very welcoming. You guys even did an eight clap for me. Appreciate that. Uh, But also looking forward to getting to know some of you for the first time and hearing a little bit in more detail about what God is doing uh, in your life and uh, in this church. Uh, Like Dan said, I'm married to Linda, and I have three boys, but unfortunately they're not able to join us. So uh, I brought the next best thing. I brought some pictures of them. And so um, I will show these pictures. Yes, so this is uh, me and Linda. Uh, We met in college in uh, 2004, and we started dating in... 2009, yep, and uh, got married in 2011, and then boom, we had three kids. So here they are, Uh, these are my three ninjas, Nathaniel in the red, Jordan in the blue, and Owen in the black, and uh, this next picture is them at their favorite place to eat for dinner, and uh, just cramming down the donuts. And then here they are in their element. This is what they're truly passionate about. This is where they're at this weekend. They're at a Taekwondo competition. Uh, The very first one that they've ever been a part of. It's one of those things where uh, they just really, really wanted to be there. So they're going to break boards and do sets and uh, hopefully uh, take home the gold. Uh, So I really wish they could have been here. They love retreats like this. uh, But um, we'll have to save that for another time where you get to meet them. Well, as you know, as you've seen in your programs and as you've seen on the screen, our topic this weekend is heaven and hell. This is a familiar topic. Even non-Christians know about heaven and hell. But our understanding of this topic oftentimes is very shallow. If you stuck a microphone in front of a Christian's face and you stuck another microphone in front of a non-Christian's face and said, tell me everything you know about heaven, and tell me everything you know about hell, you might get a very similar answer. And so this weekend, we're going to go down deep in Scripture and do a deep dive of these topics of heaven and hell so that we understand them better and so that we live better in light of eternity. Uh, Today, uh, uh, to begin, I want you to imagine a hypothetical situation. Uh, So what if I said that in a week, I have a surprise for you, and that is an all-expense-paid two-week vacation to Hawaii for each and every one of you. So nine days from today, you're not going to meet at church. You're going to meet at the airport, and we're going to fly over to Hawaii together as a church. And as soon as you get off that airplane, Pastor Steve is going to put a lay on your neck. <laughs> Pastor Ryan is going to hand you a coconut with a straw and a little umbrella in it. And Pastor Dan is going to give you a fat stack of cash. <laughs> you can spend it however you want. You could buy 
potatoes if you want, without persecution from Deb. Well, if you knew this was happening, what would you do in these next nine days? Well, you'd probably do a little bit of planning, right? You'd probably hop onto Google and type in top things to do in Hawaii. You know, they're good. They, they got good shaved ice, so you probably look, okay, what, what's the best shaved ice? Yelp, TripAdvisor. If you're into food, if you're a foodie, you would look at what, what, the, what the best food is on the entire island. If you like to shop, you would find the best places to shop. If you're into hiking, you would look for the best trails. And of course, you go to Hawaii for the beaches. And so you want to find out what are the beaches with the softest sand and the clearest water. And if you're like me, you know you got to go snorkeling. Got to swim with the dolphins, see a sea turtle. And so you got to scope out some places where you're going to go snorkeling. As a Christian, you are on your way to heaven. And it's going to be way, way better than Hawaii. And you're going to be there a lot longer than just two weeks. Wouldn't you want to know a little something about it? Wouldn't you do a little research to see what is my home, my, my permanent forever home going to be like? What is there to do there? Well, that's why we're going to talk about heaven this weekend. We're going to do a little research, a little sanctified research to find out where exactly are we going to spend eternity? God has given us a travel guide. It is his word, the Bible. And so we're going to look at some of the key passages that speak about heaven this weekend. Now, as Christians, we know that we should be excited about heaven. Uh, but you might get a little frustrated thinking, ah, I just, I just don't feel it. Yeah, I know, I know I should long for heaven. I know I should, I should want to be there. I know I should live in light of that, but I just, I just don't. I don't find my heart getting very excited about heaven. And you, you wonder why that is. Well, I think a big part of the reason is because we don't truly understand what heaven is going to be like. We have a very wrong perception of what heaven actually is. For instance, as I've been talking about heaven for these past couple of minutes or so, what are some images that came to your mind? Blue sky, perfect blue sky, fluffy clouds, floating around on these clouds, little fat angel babies with tiny wings on their back, fluttering around, playing a little miniature harp. And, and you got your cloud, and you're, you're floating around, drifting, maybe even letting out a... Checking your phone because you're bored. Because there's not much to do up there. And you imagine doing that for thousands upon thousands of years. That just sounds so boring. And I know even as a kid when I imagined that, it was scary. Is that, is that really what's going to happen for the, the rest of eternity with no end? Well, if that's your understanding of what heaven is like, then... Yeah, you should, you should think it's boring. 
and at times even think that it's scary, and you would not look forward to heaven. But thankfully, that's not what heaven is like. That's how Hollywood portrays heaven. You guys have been watching too much TV. You've been watching too many movies. The Bible speaks of heaven quite differently, and what we get as a picture of heaven in Scripture is so much better than just floating around on a cloud. And if we understand it rightly, then we will truly get excited. Our hearts will be thrilled at the idea of spending eternity in this place called heaven. So let's set the record straight and look at what the Bible says about heaven. Turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. It's at the very end of your Bible, the second to the last chapter. We're going to look at Revelation 22 for our fourth sermon on Sunday. And for our two sermons tomorrow, we're going to look at uh, the opposite of heaven, and that is hell. But for tonight, we're going to start with heaven, Revelation 21. We're going to read verses 1 through 5 and really focus our time in verses 1 through 4. Revelation chapter 21 Verses 1 through 5. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Before we jump into this text, we need to make a distinction between two heavens. What theologians call the intermediate state and the eternal state or to be clear the temporary heaven and the eternal heaven first the temporary heaven or the intermediate state this is heaven how it exists now so if you have a loved one that passes away and they're in Christ, Uh, they trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their soul immediately goes to this intermediate state, this temporary heaven. For simplicity's sake, we often just call it heaven. And that's where they are. But scripture says that this heaven doesn't last forever. It is temporary. It is an intermediate stage. But that's not to say that this heaven is bad in any way. No, heaven as it exists now is amazing. It's great. Uh, To do a quick hopscotch through the Bible, we see that the temporary heaven as it exists now is God's dwelling place. He is there. It is holy. 
sinless, absolutely perfect. Jesus calls it paradise. He says to the thief, you're going to join me in paradise. This heaven is described as being at home with the Lord. Philippians 1 calls it very much better. In Philippians 1, 21, the Apostle Paul says to die is gain. Because in death he gains Jesus. He immediately goes into the presence of Christ. And that is very much better. It is far to be desired over anything this earth has to offer. So believers who have passed away now see Jesus face to face and are enjoying sweet fellowship with him. And then Revelation 14, 13, heaven is a place of rest from all the work and pain and stress of this life. So this is the temporary heaven. This is heaven as it exists now, and it is awesome. But this, temporary, this heaven is temporary because God has something even better in store. At the very end, after all the end times events, uh, where we are here in Revelation 21, God creates a new earth, which is what we could call the eternal heaven, because this place is not temporary. It is permanent. This is our forever home, and that's what we're going to be talking about today because we're in Revelation 21. This is the new earth, the, the eternal state. And so when I use the term heaven today, uh, we're referring to this eternal state, God's ultimate and forever design of heaven. So let's look at it. Let's look at these three descriptions of heaven from Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Three descriptions of heaven. The first is that it is new. It is new. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The word new appears four times in this passage. Twice in verse 1, once in verse 2, and once in verse 5. A new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and a Savior who says, Behold, I am making all things new. Newness is clearly a theme here. The earth here is described as new, fresh, never before seen, radically different than what we experience here today. So what's so new about the new earth? First of all, there's also a new heaven to accompany this new earth. This word heaven doesn't refer to the dwelling place of God, since we'll see later in verse 3 that God dwells on this new earth. Instead, the word heaven is talking about the sky. When heaven and earth are paired together, when they're phrased together like that, it refers to the earth and the sky. So the sky above in the end times, in the eternal state, will be new. It will be completely different. The sun, moon, stars, and galaxies will all be new and better than ever before. Secondly, in verse 1, there's no more sea. The new earth won't have any large oceans. Now, in chapter 22, we are going to see that there is a river that runs through the new Jerusalem, and there, there may be some other significant bodies of water as well. But here we read that there are no seas. There are no oceans. And we can't be dogmatic as to the significance about that. Can't say for sure why exactly that is. But many commentators will speak about how 
this probably refers to the end of the separation between peoples. Because now oceans divide people. Oceans divide continents. It divides people of different skin color and backgrounds and culture. But the doing away of the sea, doing away of the ocean, perhaps, most likely, represents the uniting of all the peoples. Regardless of skin color, regardless of race, regardless of background, these people come together, every tongue, tribe, nation, and people meshed together, all singing the praises of the one true God. Another key thing to note about this new earth, and one that's very obvious, but maybe you missed it, it's that it is an earth. It is a physical place. So note that heaven is not just spiritual here in the eternal state. Heaven is physical. It is an actual place. And this makes sense because scripture oftentimes speaks about the resurrection of our physical bodies. For instance, 1 Corinthians 15, 52 to 55, Paul writes, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Though death will come to every single one of us, God will one day resurrect our bodies. This is the main difference between the temporary heaven and the eternal heaven. Right now, if you die, your soul immediately goes to be in the presence of Jesus And your soul separates from your body. So when you pass away as a Christian, your body will remain on the earth. It will remain six feet under in the coffin. But your soul will ascend to heaven to be with God. But at the end of time, there is a resurrection. Your body, physical body, will be raised. And it will be raised in glory It'll be raised in strength. It'll be raised in sinlessness. And it will be reunited with your soul. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, death gets no victory because it does not prevail. Death takes our bodies down temporarily, but our bodies will rise again in glory and immortality. Uh, Our bodies right now are susceptible to injury, a disease, a weakness, And, you know, a lot of times it's just little things here and there. But the older you get, the more you realize that uh, this body is frail. That that this body, it it carries the effects of the curse of Genesis 3. And we're reminded of that all the time. Uh, Just the other day, uh, I was playing basketball with some of the college kids at my church just to show them that I still got it, which I don't. And uh, with that mindset, I hurt myself. I went for a rebound, I jammed my finger, and (sighs) it hurt. Uh, thankfully, it was just a jam. It was just a sprain or something. wasn't broken or anything. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll be better in a few days. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Back in the day, back in the day when I ball with Albert, with Dan, 
They ball the next day. Now, three weeks, pushing four. That thing is still swollen. And so just a little reminder for myself that this body that I have, it's broken. It's frail. It's weak. It feels the effects of the curse. But one day, that's it's not going to be the case. I, you, as a Christian, you'll be, you'll be given a new body with strength, glory, immortality, a body designed to last forever. So we will undergo the resurrection. We'll be raised in our physical bodies. Why? So that we can live life on the physical new earth. We need a, a physical body to interact with the physical new earth. This is God's design for eternity. Uh, Benjamin Franklin understood this. Uh, I don't know much about the theology of Benjamin Franklin. Certainly can't put my stamp of approval on it, but he got the doctrine of the resurrection right. Uh, as a younger man, he actually wrote his own epitaph. And so this is on a plaque near his grave. This is what he wrote. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Pretty cool analogy, right? Especially if you're a book lover. Uh, our body, when, when we die, is compared to an old, beat-up, tattered book. Pages all torn up and fallen out. But one day, the divine author, our creator, will put that book back together again. Rebind it. Restitch it. Renew it. And it'll be a better edition than ever before. So we were given physical resurrected bodies to live life on the new earth. Stop to think about that for a moment. Initially, you might have been thinking heaven is floating around on a cloud. Think less like that. Think less surreal, dreamlike state. Think more physical concrete your feet are walking around on the new earth your hands are touching things you interact with people with physical bodies uh, throughout scripture we read how in heaven we will eat drink walk work rest rule with god serve god sing have relationships live in a house in a city we'll experience many of the same things that we do now uh, we read in Hebrews 11.10 that we will live in a city. And when we read that, we don't scratch our heads and think, well, what was a city? I don't know what that means, that I'm going to live in a city. No, you know what a city is, and you know what it's like to live there. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur says, the concept of a city includes relationships, activity, responsibility, unity, socialization, communion, and cooperation. Just to give you an example, if you look over at chapter 22, verse 2, maybe even on the next page or so, you'll see that there is 
a tree of life. And on this tree, there are fruit that are uh, in season all throughout the year. And fruit and trees are physical. And, and fruit isn't meant to be admired and looked at, but fruit is meant to be eaten. And so you can imagine what it's going to be like when you get there and walk the streets of the new earth. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna walk toward this tree with your physical feet. You're going to see green leaves and a brown trunk and, and brown branches and red apples with your physical eyes. You're going you're gonna to reach out and, and touch that fruit and grab it, pull it down with your physical hand. You're going you're gonna to take a bite out of it with your physical mouth. You're going to taste it with your physical tongue, and that juice is going to drip down your physical chin. Heaven is physical. Uh, Randy Alcorn, who wrote uh, a really phenomenal book on heaven, uh, it's, it's entitled simply Heaven. He gives an illustration of comparing a new earth to a new car. So what if I went up to one of you, Mr. Rick Huang, and I said, Rick, you want a new car? You want a new car? You got a good one, but uh, I'm going to buy you a new one. All right, buy you a new car. Oh, but hey, you know, it um, doesn't have uh, wheels. Yeah. Oh, also, <laughs> no steering wheel, and uh, no no engine, yeah, no no windows, yeah, no, no seats, uh, no panels. <laughs> what is this thing? No, no, that, that wouldn't make any sense if I offered Rick a new car. That's that's not a car anymore. If if you offer someone a new car, you generally know what to expect. There are some basic features about a car that make it a car. And so when we read in chapter 21 of Revelation that there is a new earth, we would expect it to be like earth. We would expect it to have the same basic features of this earth that we live on right now. And maybe this is not that exciting to you. Maybe this even bums you out. Oh, Okay, I kind of had enough of this earth. I mean, <laughs> is it? That's it? Heaven? All eternity is just going to be what's going on right now? If that's you, if this bums you out, then you don't understand just how new the new earth is. You don't understand how radically different the new earth is as opposed to the one that we have now. Remember verse 4, right in the middle there. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you're disappointed learning that heaven is actually a new earth, then you don't understand how mind-blowingly amazing it is that the curse is gone. And I know. It's hard to separate this earth from the curse because we've only known life under the curse. It's hard to imagine work without the curse. It's hard to imagine friendships without the curse. It's hard to imagine family without the curse. It's hard to imagine hobbies and activities and sports without the curse. 
but let's try. Alcorn again helps us in a section in his book entitled, What Won't Be in Heaven. He writes this, No death, no suffering. No funeral homes, abortion clinics, or psychiatric wards. No rape, missing children, or drug rehabilitation centers. No bigotry, no muggings or killings. No worry or depression or economic downturns. No wars, no unemployment, no anguish over failure and miscommunication. No con men. No locks. No mourning, no pain, no boredom, no arthritis, no handicaps, no cancer, no taxes, no bills, no computer crashes, no bombs, no drunkenness, no traffic jams and accidents, no unwanted emails, close friendships, but no clicks, laughter, but no put-downs, no hidden agendas, no backroom deals, no betrayals. Isn't that an earth you would want to live on? I know I would. I want to be there for that. This is the new earth, an earth apart from the curse. Well, number two, let's look at our second description of heaven. Heaven is also beautiful. Verse two, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. When we first lay eyes on heaven, the first moments we get there and we we glimpse our forever home, one of the first things that's going to strike us is this place is beautiful. Our home is gorgeous. In verse 2, we're introduced to the New Jerusalem, which is the capital city of heaven. God lowers this capital city down until it touches base on the physical new earth, and then our home is complete. Well, how is it described? First of all, it's huge. Uh, Look at verse 16. So skip down to verse 16 of chapter 21. We read that the New Jerusalem is a giant cube. Verse 16. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. The New Jerusalem's height, length, and width are all the same size, 12,000 stadia, which is equivalent to 1,500 miles each. The length and width would make this city 2.25 million square miles. Uh, That's more than half of the United States. And if you throw in height, another 1,500 miles, it makes it 3.375 billion cubic miles or about the size of the moon. Then look what it's made of. Verse 18. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald. And then the list goes on with other precious stones and materials. And then verse 21, 
and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Here's the point. There is nothing plain about the architecture of heaven. The walls are not made of wood or brick. They're made of jewels. Uh, The the streets are not made of pavement or, or cement. They're made of gold. The gates are not made of iron. They're made of pearls. There is nothing plain, nothing bland, nothing ordinary about the architecture of heaven. Everything is beautiful. Uh, I remember falling in love with the woman of my dreams, Linda, shortly after college. And I was serious about it. So what do you do when you're serious about it? You put a ring on it. Not this one. This one's ugly. The other one, beautiful. And uh, I started to do a little online research about uh, buying a, an engagement ring and realized that they are, they are quite expensive. At the time, I was still pretty young, and I was very, very poor. Very poor. Uh, I was in seminary, paying my own way through. My job was part-time at a self-storage unit. I worked the front desk for a self-storage place, helping people set up their accounts and stuff. Needless to say, I didn't make very much. Uh, I made Dan drive me to seminary so that I could save gas. Um, So I started looking around for rings, and man, they're expensive. Diamonds are expensive. Just a little bit of white gold for the band, super expensive. But hey, Linda's worth it. So I went for it. A very tiny diamond and a very humble band I bought for her at the time. So when I read about how the walls are made of jewels and the streets are are made of gold, it's just absolutely incredible. This place is so beautiful that the the only description that John can think of to describe our, our new home, the new Jerusalem, is a bride adorned for her husband. A bride on her wedding day, perfect, pristine. Everything has fallen into place. Everything is perfect. That's what it's described as. Uh, One special privilege of us pastors is we get to um, officiate weddings and uh, you get the best seat in the house. Uh, you're, You're right there in the front. And Uh, In the beginning of the wedding, it starts off with just you as the pastor, the groom, and uh, the best, uh, the the groomsmen up there. And then the music starts to play, and some people come down the aisle, bridesmaids, and then cute little flower girl, cute little ring bearer. And then the music changes. Everybody stands up. Those back doors swing open, and there she is absolutely perfect. Now, I do have a limited experience with doing weddings, but in my uh, pool of data points, I have seen the groom cry so many more times than the bride. I don't know exactly what it is. I've seen the groom cry maybe half of the weddings I do. The groom is in tears. I've only seen the bride cry twice. Again, I don't know what it is. Uh, Maybe uh, the the groom is just looking at his bride. And just she's absolutely perfect. I can't believe I get to marry her. She's so beautiful. And then she looks at him and she's like, well, he looks the same as he always does. So (laughs) nothing to get excited about here. 
But that's the analogy that we have here. In this analogy, we're the groom. And heaven is the bride. And we are just blown away, absolutely stunned by the beauty and glory of heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go and prepare a place for you. Little did we know what kind of place Jesus was going to prepare for us. Well, we've talked a lot about why heaven is great. It's new. It's beautiful. The walls are made of jewels. The streets are made of gold. But we, friends, we haven't even gotten to the best part yet. I haven't gotten to the best part. You really want to know what makes heaven so great? God is there. God is there. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven is new, it's beautiful, and third, it is God-centered. God is the central character of heaven, and we get him. We've talked about what's not in heaven. Sadness, pain, suffering, sickness. But heaven is not great primarily because of what's not there. Heaven is great primarily because of who is there. This is truly how the curse is reversed. This is truly how paradise, which was once lost, is now regained. The greatest loss of the fall in Genesis chapter 3 was not the Garden of Eden. The greatest loss was not a perfect marriage between husband and wife. It wasn't being able to play with and pet all the cute animals. The greatest loss of the fall was not even sinlessness. The greatest loss of the fall was the loss of God. Adam and Eve used to walk with God on a daily basis. They used to talk with him. But when they rebelled against him, when they sinned against him, then he cast them out from the garden, cast them out from his presence, and they no longer walked with him. They no longer talked with him. There was now a separation. There was a wedge driven between mankind and God. This was the greatest loss of the garden to a great degree, we lost God. But then verse 3 says that in heaven, that all changes. The curse is reversed. It says that the dwelling place of God is among men. Uh, your Bible might even say tabernacle on there because dwelling place was something of a technical term to describe the tabernacle. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the tent which housed the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the presence of God. And so... To an Old Testament saint, uh, this statement in verse 3, that the, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God dwelling among men was, was radical. They would be shocked to read verse 3. Because in the Old Testament, the presence of God, symbolized by the glory of God over the Ark of the Covenant, came and went, depending if Israel was obedient or not. If they were obedient, then the presence of God would hover over the Ark of the Covenant. It would stay in the tabernacle. But if they disobeyed, if they rebelled against God, then the presence of God would leave. And it would leave for long periods of times because of their disobedience. 
But here, that all changes. The dwelling place of God is with man forever, permanently, no longer dependent on whether there's obedience or disobedience. God dwells with his people forever. This is the culmination of all the Old Testament. Uh, Think about all the Old Testament promises that God made. I'll be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Uh, The Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. In the Old Testament, God says, I will be with you. And here he proves it. He will be with us forever. This is the best part of heaven We have God like never before, and we will never lose him. We have him in closer fellowship and closer communion than ever before. And this is something to look forward to. This is great news because, guys, are you tired? Are you tired of that feeling of just not really wanting to do your devotions. Of waking up in the morning thinking, well, I should read my Bible, I, I should pray, but I'm I just not feeling it. I just don't want to. Are you tired of coming to God's word and, and reading through a portion of scripture and then leaving thinking, I, I didn't get anything out of that? Are you tired of sitting down to pray And your mind just wanders like crazy. You're good for a solid 20 seconds. And then you're thinking about random stuff. Are you tired of coming to pray and then falling asleep? Are you tired of that feeling of, I'd really rather stay home instead of going to church this morning. And are you tired of sin? Are you tired of the battle that is, that is waiting for you every single morning when you wake up? Are you tired of falling into the same sin over and over again? Are you tired of that feeling of falling into sin that, that you know you shouldn't be doing? Well, if that's you, I think that's all of us, then heaven is good news. Because when you step foot on those golden shores, all of that changes. It is going to be so much easier and so much more exciting to hear from God in heaven when you hear him speak directly with his own lips. It's going to be so much easier to talk to God. It's going to be so much easier to pray in heaven when you see him face to face. It's going to be so much easier and so much more exciting to go to church in heaven when the church building is heaven and Jesus is the preacher. And it's going to be so much easier, natural, perfect, to avoid sin, to resist temptation when you get to heaven, when you have a sinless body. When you are holy through and through, 
and when you have closer than ever before the Holy One. God is the best part of heaven. And then look what he does for us in verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Ever since the fall of humanity, people have shed countless tears. Uh, We live in a sin-cursed world. There is pain, there is suffering, there is unexpected loss and tragedy, and so we have cried many, many tears. But that too changes in heaven because when we get there, God himself comes up to us and we will feel the touch of his hand on our cheek and he will wipe away that last tear because there's nothing left to cry about anymore. There's no more pain. There's no more tragedy. There's no more loss. There's nothing left to cry about anymore. God himself personally will wipe away our tears. And so heaven will truly become heaven to us when we feel the touch of our God on our cheek, telling us that we have entered a perfect heaven and that he is making all things new. Well, let's now turn to three points of application. Uh, What do we do with this. We'll talk more in the last sermon as well, but uh, let's just start with three points of application. The first is holiness. Holiness. If everything in this text is real, why do we keep giving in to sin? Right? I mean, reading these, these words and understanding this truth should make us look at sin and say, really, why, why am I messing around with this? Why, why am I still indulging in this? What am I doing? Why am I wasting my time here? Because this, this, t- this pleasure that I get from sin is so small, so temporary compared to what is to come. The, the enormous pleasure, the forever pleasure that I will have with my God in heaven. And if this life is just a drop in the bucket, can't I just hold on a little longer? Can't I just hold on a little longer and resist temptation to sin? Because soon temptation will be over. Soon the fight, the struggle will be over. Second application, evangelism. Learning about heaven is our motivation to say to our family and friends, you're not going to believe where I'm going. Won't you come with me? Yeah, evangelism is tough. Uh, It's awkward. Uh, It's hard to find the motivation to do it. But remember that when we evangelize, we truly have good news Because we are calling people to live forever in a place of highest joy. And if we're doing that, then we can say along with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You see, when we evangelize, we're calling people to eternal happiness. And we need never be ashamed of calling people to eternal happiness. third application is self-examination. 
The third application is for your own soul, your own destiny. Where are you headed? Where are you going to be 10,000 years from today? Paul says to examine yourself, to see if you are in the faith. And it's a good thing, even if you've been going to church for a really long time, even if you've been calling yourself a Christian for a really long time. Uh, This weekend is a great opportunity to do some soul searching, to examine yourself, because the obvious implication here is that the best thing that you can do in this life is to figure out for sure where you're going to spend eternity. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are so thankful for uh, this good news of heaven, uh, this description that you've given us of our future and eternal home that uh, gets our souls excited. Uh, But God, I confess uh, that uh, my soul is not excited enough and that uh, we often... Uh, have our fingers wrapped so tightly around this world that we care so much about stuff here, about money, about jobs, about uh, all the things that this world has to offer. But Lord, I pray that we would see these things in light of eternity. Uh, God, that you would stamp eternity on our very eyes so that we see this world with an eternal perspective. God, I pray that RBF as a church would uh, just continue to encourage each other in this, to speak of eternal things, to speak of heavenly things, so that uh, as a church, they set their mind on things above. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.